Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. The reading comes from John 11:17 through 44. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and her sister Mary and called her sister Mary and told her privately, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. 
Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And so we are just um, one week before Easter, and uh, in these last days, this countdown to Easter, the Bible serves us up a very familiar, very familiar, normally this happens the the Sunday before um, Palm Sunday, but this is the question at hand for us today. Bible serves up a, a very familiar and incredibly long and intense story from the Gospel of John. Um, and like I said, you may have heard it earlier this week as Paul led our, um, our devotion. Here's the gist. Jesus' friend Lazarus was sick over in Bethany, which is like a suburb of Jerusalem. And we know this because Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, two women, Jesus befriended along his travels they send word to Jesus to tell him about this. You remember the story about Mary and Martha, right? You know who Mary and Martha are. It is that Mary and Martha. Mary, the contemplative one, the mystical one, the one who sits at the feet of Jesus, the great rabbi, and actually to be debated whether or not it might also be the, the Mary who poured expensive perfume. Depends on the version of the gospel you read. And then you have Martha, the practical one, who is the wizard in the kitchen, the expert hostess who welcomed Jesus into her home and did everything she could to make him feel comfortable. Well, Mary and Martha, they tell Jesus, come quick, Lazarus, the one you love, Jesus, is ill. Oddly, though, Jesus, the healer of Galilee, the friend of the friendless, the, like, Mr. Compassion himself, he takes his sweet little time getting there. In fact, Jesus waits, it says, two entire days before he starts walking the two miles from Jerusalem to Bethany. Two days, two days before he even starts. And it's this, this late arrival that marks the beginning of today's gospel reading. Lazarus has um, been dead now for four days. And Martha is beside herself with grief, but also beside herself with resentment. It's been four days. Lord, Lord, if you had been here, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. And so a deep sense of belief resides in Martha that Jesus has the capacity to heal him. 
And Jesus starts in on her about new life. I assure you, your brother will rise again, he says. And Martha thinks, what an empty response. Jesus, spare me the piety. Sure, of course, I know my brother will rise again on the last day in the resurrection. But like, what about now? What about what I'm feeling right this second? Mary and I living in this patriarchal world all alone, now vulnerable. Who will take care of us now that our brother isn't around, Jesus? Lazarus isn't just sealed in the tomb. Like our entire family name is sealed in that tomb and, and we might as well have died with him. Am, am I hearing this right? Mary thinks to herself, like, is Jesus really in the face of my tragedy just offering me empty religious assertions? Like equivalent to some kind of nice thoughts and prayers thing? But, but Jesus actually isn't. Jesus isn't just spouting some easy answer like chicken soup for the grieving soul kind of response. Um, he's, he's not explaining away her pain and grief with pithy little sayings. Like, you know, God just needed another little angel in heaven and your brother fit the bill. Or Martha, you can never understand God's will, right? It's not yours to understand. Jesus doesn't leave them with emptiness, uh, empty words. Did you hear what Jesus said? He says, your brother will rise. And then he says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will in fact see the glory? In other words, I, I am not here with some abstract, philosophical, touchy-feely version about what the resurrection will one day be like in the last day. Like right here, right now, I am as much resurrection and life as you are ever going to need. And didn't I tell you I would be? And with that, they go out of the cemetery, the land of death, where, where there is always much weeping. And when Jesus arrives at Lazarus' grave, he too is overcome with the pain of all of this. And it says that he is so greatly disturbed in spirit, so deeply moved by the, in the depths of his very soul, a better, actual, more literal translation of this word disturbed in the Greek um, is that he felt as though his heart was being torn to shreds. And it says that Jesus began to weep. That's the thing about, about, about the resurrection and the life. It absolutely hates death. It despises death. Death disturbs Jesus at Jesus' very core. It rips Jesus' insides to pieces, it says, and causes tears to pour out from him. And then Jesus screams, take away the stone. And practical Martha knows better. 
She says, Lord, he, he, he's been dead for four days. Like, don't you smell that? It already smells like death here. Lazarus's death is real. Death is so real in this story that it has a stench even. And there is Jesus, this self-proclaimed resurrection and life, standing in a graveyard. And through his sobs, he cries, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man, he comes out, and his hands and his feet are bound with, uh, with strips of cloth. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. And according to John's gospel, that's how life deals with death. Jesus, the life, unbinds death and lets it go. And just like that, Lazarus is standing in the presence of the resurrection in his midst. Lazarus is alive. Now, one might expect Lazarus to embrace Jesus when this happens, to like cry out with this like thanksgiving that he's been brought back to life. He's been brought back from the grave. Can you imagine a person's gratitude in that moment to open his arms to the sky and give thanks like for the light that he now sees that's broken through and into this darkened tomb? And, but apparently, Lazarus doesn't say anything at all. Four days, four days in the blackness of death, raised to new life, and not one word from Lazarus is recorded by John. Maybe it's, maybe it's because Lazarus uh, wasn't given... Hey, baby. Hi. <laughs> Oh, hello. Well, that's fun. That's just joy, y'all. That's fun. Um, I'm just glad it's not mine. <laughs> yeah, so no word from Lazarus at all. No word from Lazarus. How strange. Maybe, and maybe, maybe it's because Lazarus wasn't given a choice in the matter. Frantic over the loss of his brother, Mary and, over the loss of their brother, Mary and Martha, they, like, they went to work immediately, right? They went to work but to, to figure out a solution to this, to call Jesus, but nobody ever asked whether Lazarus had a, like a, a DNR. <laughs> nobody wondered whether, whether he would have wanted to be summoned forth from his tomb to face the world again. And even if Lazarus wasn't just exhausted by life and illness and, and fighting for life, and, and even if he wasn't ready for the life to come, no one wondered whether he would want to be summoned forth from his cozy tomb to face the world again. It may well be that Lazarus preferred the safety of the tomb. He rather liked keeping the world at a distance and, and the bandages that cover his eyes. Perhaps Lazarus didn't even know he was dead. 
1921, uh, William Yeats wrote a little play called Calvary. And the play depicts this Lazarus, rarely seen in this way as being indignant toward Jesus when he walks out of the tomb. Just angry with Jesus. The tomb was comfortable. He knew who he was in the tomb. For the first time in his existence, he had four days just to be dead. No light, no love, no sorrow, no beauty, no tragedy, just dead. And then the life shows up. With a a scream shrill enough to wake the dead, the resurrection calls him out of his comfortable hole into the light. And Yates puts puts the following words into Lazarus's mouth as he comes out of the tomb to face the one who's raised him from the dead. Lazarus says, you took my death, give me your death instead. And Jesus responds, I gave you life. No, says Lazarus, I asked for death. Alive, I, I never could escape your love. And when I sickened towards my death, I thought I'll go to the, the desert or, or chuckle in a corner, mere ghost, a solitary thing. I died and I saw no more until I saw you stand in the opening of that tomb. Come out, you called, and you dragged me to the light as a boy drags a rabbit when you have dug its hole away. Lazarus, you see, is just like us, just like us. He enjoys the tomb. When it comes to the realities of the harsh world around us, he would rather keep in the dark. He feels more comfortable being closed off, safely confined, not bothered by what's happening outside his own little enclave. It's easier to to deal with existence when the world and all its pain and injustice are locked out, right? We much prefer to stay sealed in the tomb, but Jesus won't rest until, with Lazarus, we are brought into the light, dragged from our holes too. Our our insulating bandages torn off of us too. It was December of my first year at Duke when, um, when a gunman opened fire on elementary school schoolers at Sandy Hook. That that happened December of my first year. And it was in the new year, only about three weeks later or so, there was this um, scare right around the corner from Duke. Um, A similar elementary school in Durham, this destructive plan that was just barely thwarted, barely thwarted before it could become another Sandy Hook. And so in February, um, the Divinity School and the the School of Criminal Justice and the School of Psychology on campus all partnered together to sponsor this university-wide, community-wide, like big impact kind of discussion on gun violence and mental health and how, how we, members of the Duke community, future mental health, professionals, future pastors, future law enforcement and politicians, how we could all do something about it. From what I understand, only a few people showed up. My guess would be um, that everyone was in the same place I was, over at Cameron, 
taking in a basketball game. It was incredibly underattended, very underwhelming. And I, I suspect Jesus would say, um, the moment basketball gets more of our attention, becomes more important to us than mass shootings, we're as good as dead. And that was just 2012 when, when we were all still so disproportionately outraged about everything all the time, right? That was just the way we lived. And now it's 2023 and we've become completely numb. And so in the face of death, Jesus shows up and Jesus weeps. And Jesus reminds us that he's deeply disturbed. His heart turns to shreds. And we, on the other hand, we adapt and accept it as it is and go about our business again. In, um, in this town in, in Honduras, there is this sacred place um, for weeping and memory and life. Um, and it was constructed by grieving women. It, it's a place that gives life to their dead brothers and husbands and sons. Um, between 1980 and 1989, Honduras, this sleepy little Central American country, found itself on the front lines of the Cold War. The United States was using military bases in Honduras to aid anti-communist rebels across the border in El Salvador. And in, in the span of about nine years, hundreds of young Hondurans, um, mostly college-educated professionals and, and vocal opponents of, of their own government's involvement in the Cold War and relationship with the United States even, um, they just simply disappeared. And one day there, there were, they were there, and the next day they were gone, and, and these mostly young men have come um, to be known succinctly now as the disappeared. Sometimes the bodies were found, sometimes they were not found, sometimes they're never reco recovered, and, and, and the world pretended it did not exist. And they had, in fact, disappeared, vanished, they were, they were just forgotten until their sisters and their mothers and their wives and their grandmothers could not, would not stand for it anymore. And these strong women began to protest in the streets in front of the presidential palace, hearing the pictures of their brothers and their husbands and their sons and marching through the capital, reminding the world of their beloved dead. Bodies locked in some stone-cold, unmarked tomb somewhere. And ever so slowly, the world began to listen and pay attention to it. Human rights groups like started intervening all of a sudden super late to the game, but they did. The number of dis disappeared actually decreased when that happened. A few bodies were recovered, and now there is a sacred place in the downtown dedicated to the memory of the disappeared. Their pictures are hanging on the walls there now. 
out in the open where everyone can see and their lives unlocked from the tombs. I once read a love letter from, from 1982 by a social a activist that was protesting his country's all too cozy relationship with our own government that he wrote to his, his new bride in 1982, a letter that was the very last letter she ever received from him, the last time she ever heard from him. He disappeared soon after it was written. Um, and honestly, I would, I would rather stay dead in the tomb from such injustice, like we all would. I would rather stay dead in the tomb from such injustice that feels utterly unsolvable Jesus wouldn't have it. Jesus instead says, don't you know I'm the resurrection and the life? Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see? I would rather stay dead in the tomb, but Jesus wouldn't have it, and that's because Christians are supposed to be those peculiar people who follow the life that refuses to stay dead in the numbing, dead-end tomb of darkness, that refuses to go into solitude and apathy, the tomb that keeps the world and all its problems at bay. It doesn't take a PhD in New Testament to discern that the raising of Lazarus is the pre-Easter story for us, a foreshadowing of what will, what is about to happen less than a week from now. Sure, Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, but the, but the price he pays is that he'll have to go into the tomb himself. Jesus himself will become one of those disappeared. The powers of death, the brass at the, at the Pentagon, the, 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 the religious establishment, the, the fickle crowds, those who want the world to stay like it is, will put Jesus in a tomb, hoping he might just go away. And so Easter morning, it isn't merely just about sunlight and lilies and trumpets. On that morning, Jesus will storm out of the grave and back into the world, and like it or not, bandages and all kicking and screaming, those of us who follow Jesus will also be dragged out of our sheltered tombs and into a world of resurrection and life, too. Would you pray with me? God, it's so easy to, to, to get stuck in the tomb. And the outrage isn't any better, God. Outrage is what leads to numbness. We become outraged about everything where we forget what it, it even feels like to really be disturbed in spirit. And God, we've been disturbed in spirit so much that um, our spirits don't know how to be disturbed anymore. And we are so certain that things are just as they are, and we can't do much about them. God, 
Dad, call us out of the tomb. Make us be the people who create sacred space, who build, um, who build a, a sacred space that honors the disappeared and the dead. Make us be the people, those mothers, those uh, sisters, those grandmothers, those wives who refuse to be stuck in the tomb refuse to allow the disappeared to go unnoticed. God, and when we get tired of it, and when we would rather just stay in the tomb, call us out. Tell us to pick up another pen and write another letter. Tell us to get on the phone and make another phone call. (laughs) to join hands with others who are also speaking loudly until we don't have to just make sense of it, but we can literally see glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.